Welcome to the Our Voices feed. I am Aaron White, the North America editor for Our Economy. What you're about to listen to here is an interview with Raj Patel, conducted by myself and our podcast producer, Freddie Stewart. Raj Patel is an award-winning author, filmmaker, and academic who is currently a research professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Austin, Texas. He has written several books, including The Value of Nothing, which was an international and New York Times bestseller, and most recently, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, co-written with Jason Moore. The following conversation covers a range of topics, from the labor mobilizations crucial to implementing the original New Deal, to why reparations are central to an equitable climate agenda. Before we get started, it should be noted that this interview was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic, so please excuse any outdated references. So here's Raj Patel on the Green New Deal. So I thought it'd be good to outline for our listeners why any Green New Deal necessarily involves an agricultural revolution. Well, I mean, it's not just that agriculture uh, globally is between 15 and 20 percent of uh, greenhouse, anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, um, but it's also uh, th- that you can't imagine a transformation of uh, U.S. responsibilities around uh, around greenhouse gas emissions and around climate change without uh, reimagining what it is that the U.S. has firstly done to uh, the soil, not just in the United States, but elsewhere, uh, but also what the possibilities are for a reimagined connection to the land um, in ways that are, are very different from uh, the, the ways we're encouraged to forget about the, the heartland or forget about where our food comes from under the current system of capitalism. Great. And in that piece as well, you mentioned how we have to talk about the hegemonic common sense that stands between progressive politicians and the the implementation of the Green New Deal. Could you explain what you mean by that and how agriculture and farm workers are central to this counter hegemonic struggle? The essential idea in, in using um, the, the sort of I, the, the concept of hegemony uh, is to help make sense of the fact that while uh, we, you know, when you hear about the Green New Deal, initially it seems like it's going to be fantastic for farmers because it involves spending much more money on food, uh, that it involves um, recognising the contribution that farmers and ranchers make uh, and understanding that uh, soil carbon sequestration is tremendously important to moving forward in in any meaningful, uh, you know, sort of operation of a a climate policy. Um, And if that's the case, and if you know there's more money in this for farmers than ever before, why is it that uh, farmers from the left and right resoundingly uh, ignored it? Um, and th- th- it's true that there are a few fantastic farmers and ranchers, and, and, and uh, you know, I co-wrote this piece in the Jacobin uh, in Jacobin with uh, Jim Goodman, who is the president of the National Family Farm Coalition. So it's not it's not entirely true that uh, there is no intellectual leadership in the. The, the, the hegemonic block that we're in at the moment from from farmers. Uh, but it, it's certainly the case uh, that part of the way that power operates is to make certain things seem normal. 
Um, and the way that uh, capitalism achieves its hegemony, the, what, the way that, that capitalism is able to uh, make us move forward with ideas and to consent to ideas that are not in our class interest and not in our personal interest, um, is by seizing the idea of uh, common sense and making certain absurd ideas seem normal. Um, and in that moment uh, of making, of rendering certain things as part of the fabric of common sense, uh, that involves leadership from not just the financiers and the high capitalists who drive forward uh, certain kinds of class interest, but it involves conscripting certain other members of uh, other classes into this dominant hegemonic bloc. That's why you, you're able to see um, people of color voting for Trump, even or, or immigrants voting for Trump, even if uh, it's not it's not entirely clear that Trump has uh, immigrants' uh, you know, rights, uh, you know, in in the the cockles of his heart. Uh, and that's if if we're interested in mounting a counter hegemony, a, a response to uh, the hegemony that uh, this dominant block, uh, as I said, an assembly of uh, certain kinds of ruling class interests and certain kinds of working class interests together represent, then we're going to have to assemble a front and a counter hegemonic block uh, that is about stitching together the farmers who are pushing back against the, 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 the nonsense coming from the dominant hegemonic bloc. But it's also about farm workers and also about uh, consumers. And it's also about uh, folk who are making a living out of um, you know, out of processing food, and it's about the, the workers who are involved in food waste. I mean, it's it's a long chain uh, of folk who have to uh, align their interests in ways that also straggle, straddle class divides. So this isn't a purely working class movement uh, because it involves farmers, and farmers are sometimes uh, employers, uh, and they are so, so sometimes owners of land. Uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, there's going to be some uh, cross-class antagonism uh, as part of a counter-hegemonic bloc. But it's important to recognise that because uh, merely saying, well, you know, the, the working class or the gravediggers or the ruling class doesn't automatically give you the, the organising tools in order to be able to transform society. And uh, Gramsci's idea of hegemony really helps uh, understand and explain why culture and ideology are a central part to this much, ra you know, this much bigger agricultural revolution. Perfect. So how successful would you say so far the progressive movement in the United States has been in countering that sort of traditional hegemony? And when I say that, I mean both the sort of progressive caucus in Congress, but also social movements on the ground and labor movements that might be working within sort of farmers unions to try and push back against this idea and promote the Green New Deal as something that can also be good for farmers. Well, I mean, I, I am seeing, um, I mean, within Congress uh, is the last place to look, I think. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, we see interesting people uh, on, the on the edges of congressional politics doing interesting things, but that's not where the fight is. Uh, and even though the, the text of the Green New Deal appears as a, con uh, as a congressional uh, discussion document, uh, it's not really in Congress that you would expect the changes that it seeks to happen, uh, if you if you read the text of the House resolution that that uh, calls for a Green New Deal, um, it calls for a movement, uh, and you don't want Congress organising a movement. Uh, and so, even though that this the, the deal says you know the Green New Deal movement is part of uh, as part of this process. Um, it's not clear that anyone wants Congress to be doing that. Uh, so you're right to look beyond Congress. Uh, and one of the interesting places to look is in the labor movement. Um, 
you see within the labor movement uh, schisms that you would expect. So, you know, it, it's, it's not clear that the auto workers are um, throwing their lot in with the Green New Deal. Um, but then again, you see some unexpected um, uh, leadership around the Green New Deal and not just from um, low carbon jobs like teaching or nursing, um, but from possibly the very highest carbon jobs uh, like the, the Flight Attendants Union is taking a very strong uh, vision on the Green New Deal, a very, is, is, is allying itself um, very strongly for the Green New Deal, in part because this is an occupational safety issue. Um, if there's going to be uh, air travel in an era of climate change, then who is it that's going to be hit by these uh, increasingly frequent pockets of uh, sudden turbulence and who's going to be injured by them uh, than flight attendants? Um, but also uh, flight attendants are, are, are for that reason, lobbying for you know, a future of electric air travel and of zero carbon air travel. Uh, and that uh, seems to me to be a, a very interesting moment of, of organising and of organising power. Uh, the flight attendants are one example, but you're seeing um, a, a group called Farmers and Ranchers for a Green New Deal. Um, you're seeing uh, a, an increased level of interest in other kinds of uh, movements for social justice. And so, you know, the movement for black lives, uh, for example, making uh, you know, interesting uh, connections between uh, ideas of racial justice and reparations and the idea of, uh, of climate change and how it is that that will disproportionately affect people of colour. All of this is happening outside Congress, but is certainly part of the knitting together of this counter-hegemonic movement. So uh, certainly we're seeing some progress, and uh, insofar as we're seeing that progress, we're also seeing um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the capitalists fighting back. Great. And I was wondering if you could extend that to the historical legacy of the original New Deal and um, and what we can learn from that level of organizing relative to what we're seeing on the ground today. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's, uh, the, the New Deal itself has um, a bunch of very interesting sort of historiography where people are, are, are sort of saying, well, you know, the, the, the New Deal happened in the, the sort of from 1933-ish until um, the Second World War. And then uh, the Second World War really took over. And so that was the end of the New Deal. And then, you know, since then, it's sort of been in decline. Um, but uh, I, I think it's, it's worth remembering that the New Deal itself emerges from a decade of worker struggle. Um, and you see sort of 4% uh, of the US uh, uh, population on strike in 1919, for example, uh, which is an incredible number of people uh, who are uh, engaged in labor stoppages and who recognize that one of the most powerful uh, weapons that they have to be able to bend society to their will is the ability to make their bosses listen to them because they're not working for their bosses. Uh, that kind of militancy doesn't happen by magic. It happens because there's widespread organizing, particularly from communists, socialists and anarchists um, in the, the United States. Uh, and you know, there, there's always been a very important socialist and anarchist history in the United States. Um, you know, the, the reason we have uh, women's, you know, the women's right to vote, for example, is a, about an emergence of movements driven by anarchist and socialist women's clubs, particularly on the um, uh, on the East Coast, but also in Chicago, uh, around uh, you know going on strike and taking militancy to the streets in order to achieve the right to vote. Uh, that obviously has sort of been erased in the histories that we have of the United States, and so these the socialists and anarchists um, aren't fully featured in any reasonable retelling of the, the New Deal. But it's important to remember that these movements existed and fought, uh, because if we forget that, then um, we 
tend to fall into the sort of great man history of, of the Green New Deal, where it was that Herbert Hoover was a very bad man and then FDR came along as a very good man and that uh, all of a sudden that very good man just did a whole bunch of nice things uh, until World War II came along and then Hitler was a very bad man. Uh, and then, uh, you know, everything sort of fell apart uh, after FDR dies. Uh, and that's not a correct telling of the the long history of um, class struggle that, that has characterized not just the emergence of the New Deal, but even the emergence of uh, resistance before the New Deal. I mean, you know, in, in a longer version of this article, um, Jim Goodman and I talk a lot about the history of the populists. Um, and uh, you know, we're told these days that we're in a moment of populist fervor, um, but that's not doing any service to the original populists who, um, you know, where uh, this is a sort of a, an interestingly diverse coalition uh, where black populism was uh, an important feature of how it is that uh, different groups in the United States uh, saw their autonomy and possibility from the federal government and from capitalism. Uh, and through, you know, the, the idea of the populist was, uh, among other things, to, to be able to control uh, the money supply and to be able to have an inflationary money supply and to be able to think about how cooperatives would supply uh, you know, cities and provide fair wages for farmers and provide parity between farmers' wages and industrialist wages. Uh, and all of, all of these ideas are forgotten in the histories that precede the New Deal. And so when we think about the New Deal now, um, it's important to remember that the New Deal itself built on histories uh, of struggle and of popular organizing and of working class theorizing that are very much necessary today if we are to have a, you know, a, a Green New Deal that is worthy of the name. I'm careful here not to fall into this great man theory of history that you've just outlined for us, but I completely acknowledge the importance of social movements and you need to create the base to then put pressure on politicians to start enacting or give them license to enact a vision for a Green New Deal. However, I would like to get your thoughts on some of the candidates that are running for the Democratic nomination at the moment. We have heard more about the Green New Deal and significantly more about climate change than we have in previous elections. In terms of agricultural policy, though, and the revolution in how we approach the farming sector, etc., have you heard as much as you would like to hear from the candidates? And if so, which candidates stand out for you as the ones that are looking to address the Green New Deal comprehensively in these areas? Well, you know, I mean, insofar as there is any talk about, I mean, and it is striking that this time round, um, all the Democratic candidates who are now, uh, who are still in the race uh, and, have, you know, sort of uh, are in the top five or six, seem to have a rural policy. And that's, um, that's an interesting break from last time. Uh, in part, it's a recognition of uh, the fact that Democrats um, are polling very badly in certain parts of the Midwest um, and uh, a recognition in part that Democrats have sold out um, small farmers and small farming communities for decades. Um, it's, you know, you can absolutely see why uh, a continuation of Obama era farm policy isn't really in the best interests of um, sustainable family farms, for example. I mean, it, it may be uh, in the interests of large farms, uh, and it's perhaps no, uh, no, no coincidence that Tom Vilsack, the, the Secretary of Agriculture under Obama, is campaigning alongside Biden, um, and you know, who, who, whom he fully endorses as a man who can get things done. And I don't doubt that Biden could get things done, it's just they wouldn't be good things. Uh, whereas, 
Uh, I mean, I, I'm seeing when it comes to, uh, yeah, and I see Amy Klobuchar saying similar things that, you know, we need to be guided by the wisdom of the Farm Bureau. Uh, and for listeners who don't know, the Farm Bureau is, uh, you know, it, it started off as another of the Chamber of Commerce's bureaus, like there was a Roads Bureau and there was a Rail Bureau and, and, and farm, the Farm Bureau, it eventually became its own thing. But if you're wondering what the Farm Bureau is, think of it as the Chamber of Commerce, but for farms. And when the, you know, the Farm Bureau says, oh, you know, we have six million members, remember, that there are only two million farmers in America and most of the members of the Farm Bureau are there because it, it provides uh, discount insurance um, and you need to be a member to qualify in the same way that AAA gives you discount insurance. So again, think of the Farm Bureau more like AAA than it is a representative of the farm community. However, when a lot of the centrist Democratic candidates take their lead from the Farm Bureau, what they're signalling is a commitment to uh, large-scale US export agriculture that doesn't really mess with the ideas of climate um, or, you know, trouble uh, any of the large-scale industrial agricultural operations that uh, that make their living off the, the sweat of, of workers in, in farm country. Um, Warren and, uh, and, and Bernie are uh, exceptions. Um, and both of them are making sounds that, uh, are, that, that are heartening insofar as they are committed to doing things like breaking up monopolies. Um, and, and that's a sort of bare minimum. And it's something that, that while every farmer um, has, uh, you know, has their own sort of class interest, almost no one is excited about the idea of monopolies in rural areas. Uh, and the idea of breaking up monopolies ought to be something of a win winner. Um, and yet at the moment we have uh, the Republican, um, you know, we have Sonny Perdue uh, really doing his best to, to push through uh, legislation that makes it even harder for farmers to, uh, to take uh, conglomerates to court, um, you know, in the chicken industry or other, or, or other industries. And so insofar as uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are taking that on, that's, that's very reassuring. But in terms of the large scale transformation that's required in agriculture and across, um, you know, not, not just rural America, but across the articulations of rural America with urban America with the rest of the planet, um, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone approaches the recognition that Sanders has. Um, and even Sanders' numbers uh, strike me as a little on the low side, um, even though um, he gets walloped in the press for, for talking about trillions and trillions uh, that are required. Um, the fact is that the climate crisis is a, a problem of that magnitude uh, and that the, the trillions that Sanders is, is offering, um, well, the, the trillions are a down payment on the kind of work that's absolutely going to be required if we are to live in a world that um, manages just the climate catastrophe in a way that doesn't sacrifice hundreds of millions of humans. And obviously trade agreements are central to this discussion right now. And I'm wondering if you can comment on how USMCA was just passed without mentioning climate change, but also more broadly the connection between trade deals, the role of multilateral institu institutions such as the World Bank and the IMF, and what Sanders or another progressive administration can do within these institutions when it comes to climate policy. Yeah, you know, I mean, there have been a few moments um, where uh, I have found myself in the, the awful position of having to agree with Donald, Donald Trump, um, where, uh, and, and this is um, because Trump is a skeptic when it comes to free trade, and I am too. Um, and, you know, I mean, when I and thousands of others were protesting against the World Trade Organization in the late 90s, for example, um, we were protesting because trade agreements have, uh, by design, the the impl the the, uh, the consequence of pitting working classes against working classes, pitting farmers against farmers, uh, and of 
uh, opening up pipelines of low-cost supplies of labor and of commodities for the you know the, the multinationals that profit from um, pitting you know Vietnam against um, um, Peru or you know against uh, um, uh, you know Cambodia. Um, now the, the the trouble is that xenophobes and bigots also don't like trade agreements because it means that uh, their their particular class of white people or their, their particular caste of white people doesn't uh, get gets thrown out of a job. And often when we were fighting the World Trade Organization, we had to tell the fascists to fuck off because you know their 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 analysis was not our analysis, even if they didn't like the World Trade Organization. Um, uh, and so now when we have a bigot uh, railing against these horrible trade agreements, uh, occasionally I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm there saying, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, even if you make a trade agreement, we shouldn't bind future, you know, future sovereign governments uh, to your whims. But of course, what actually has happened with the USMCA is uh, sort of cosmetic window dressing around environment and labor standards, but actually uh, the same kinds of uh, ability for companies to take uh, countries to court remain central to the USMCA. And so uh, the USMCA has effectively um, t tied the hands of, uh, of future administrations that want to uh, mess with domestic sourcing regulations, for instance, um, that might have uh, very positive impacts on uh, on you know carbon sequestration, but will allow um, corporations to sue for lost profits as a result of better climate policy. Um, so uh, these trade agreements historically have had the the effect of generating more pollution, um, and the, the 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 trouble is that they what they've also done is built courts that allow corporations to sue countries for countries doing the right thing from time to time. Uh, and that's one of the greater dangers of trade agreements. When you hear trade agreement, really what you're hearing is um, mechanisms for country, for, for companies to sue. And that's why they're very keen on these trade agreements. And you know, while the US has stymied the World Trade Organization by not appointing any new judges to its um, dispute settlement body, uh, the USMCA is a renewal of that kind of commitment to ensuring that there are ways for, for companies to get their pound of flesh. Um, and sometimes, you, you know, the, the, the trade agreement issues are very tightly intermeshed with, uh, as you say, what the World Bank and the IMF are up to. Um, because if countries are heavily in debt, and um, I mean, obviously, the US is a heavily indebted country, but it's, it's the kind of country that doesn't have to worry about its debt because it can just print more money. Um, but when, uh, you know, low income countries and former, you know, sort of former colonies find themselves he heavily in debt, um, they have to cede sovereignty to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Um, and the IMF and World Bank will offer helpful solutions like, well, why don't you chop down this forest and export it? Or why don't you um, get this oil out of the ground and, and sell it on, on the international market for dollars, then use those dollars to pay back the loans that you owe us? Uh, and those kinds of, uh, uh, you know, ostensibly well-meaning, sound macroeconomic advice um, ends up being just a way for foreign investors to deepen their hold on uh, on local economies, but also, you know, uh, allow uh, a dominant bourgeoisie to get itself involved in the natural resource economy um, and to freeze, uh, you know, the, the status quo of, uh, of a developing country or you know, a country in the global south in a way that um, perpetuates the misery not only of its working class and of its indigenous people, um, but locks uh, entire countries into these these sort of post-colonial relationships of domination. Just a brief follow-up on that. Is there anything that you think a progressive administration in the US could do to help reform those institutions like the IMF and the World Bank? 
Or is it going to be more of a case of lobbying against them and even in the long run looking to replace them? Well, look, I mean, you know, the IMF and the World Bank are, um, you know, they, they started off as these institutions, particularly the World Bank, as, you know, the Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Uh, and after World War II, uh, there was a need to um, rebuild Europe. Uh, and insofar as there is a need to rebuild the, the you know, the, the post-carbon economy, um, I, I think that there, there are institutions that are required to do that. But the World Bank has grown beyond its reconstruction mandate and is now very much in the providing uh, advice and uh, you know, easy paths for, uh, for international finance and business to be able to settle themselves into an economy. Um, the bank is not fit for purpose. And uh, I do think that uh, an appropriate response of the bank is both to defund it, but also to pay reparations for the damage it has caused. Um, and that that very much puts um, the you know any future progressive administration at odds with the bank and the fund. And that's as it should be. Uh, I, I think that the, the fund and the bank have a great deal of blood on their hands um, through the macroeconomic policies that resulted in deaths, that have resulted in malnutrition, that have resulted in uh, generations uh, of you know ch children being forced to pay for education and for healthcare. Um, those kinds of things uh, ought to be recognized and named uh, in some sort of future process of reparation um, in which the United States recognizes and, yeah, and, and Europe recognizes um, the harms that it has done uh, and you know, conducted through these institutions uh, and tries to make amends for that. And just lastly here, can you speak to the issue of reparations within the context of a Green New Deal? No, I mean, just very quickly, I mean, you know, we, we have models uh, of reparation that are happening um, in, you know, that, that exist in other countries that even municipalities are starting to, uh, to, to engage in. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, it's, it's not hard to imagine an accounting of what it is that the United States has done with its fossil fuel uh, economy, with its, uh, you know, it, its military protection for um, the extractive industries around the world, uh, and to imagine how it is that uh, the, the US might begin to uh, repent and atone for that in a way that is not a private atonement, but is very much a public one uh, that, that doesn't privatize uh, the, the act of asking for forgiveness in the same way that um, so, so much else has been privatized, uh, but, but that recognizes that collectively uh, this you know this government and this state has done harm uh, and that as part of a move towards a uh, you know a, a regenerative economy uh, it will recognize the, the harms that have been done both in the in the conducting of the transatlantic slave trade uh, in the genocide of indigenous people who um, you know continue to live in the United States um, who are part of the over 500 nations that are federally recognized even though we're, we're told every day that this is one nation under God it's not um, and you know even federally we recognize that it's several hundred nations uh, that, that are uh, part of uh, the, you know this landmass uh, that, that passes itself off as the United States uh, but also so, I, I mean, I do imagine that we've, I mean, I, I can already see that we have the infrastructure, we have uh, the, the political processes underway in which um, reparations are thinkable. And part of the, the, the job of a sort of counter-hegemonic block is going to make is, is going to be to make that the idea of reparations, the idea that yes, all right, well, we, you know, it's 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 not our fault, but it's our responsibility uh, to understand that as as part of the process through which we uh, make whole our relationship with the earth again.
Thank you for listening to this Our Voices podcast from Open Democracy. If you enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen, why not head to iTunes, subscribe and leave us a review? Open Democracy is an independent global media platform that is only possible because of your kind donations. To find out more or to make a donation, head to opendemocracy.net.